Well, good evening and welcome back to our series of studies through the book of Esther. Tonight, we will be studying chapter 1, verses 16 through 22, which is the end of the chapter. But first, let's just briefly review what we studied last time. The king, King Ahasuerus, is drunk, drunk with wine. And he has been drinking and showing off his great power and his many, many possessions to all the inhabitants of the capital city, Susa. And then as a crescendo, he sends for his beautiful queen for the purpose of displaying her as his crown jewel, the trophy of his greatness. Now at this point, he's anticipating to be exalted one final time before this royal feast of his comes to an end. But the queen has other plans. She disobeys his command and refuses to come to him. And we're told at that point, when the king finds out about this, that he becomes enraged. We're told that his anger burned within him. So in his drunken and humiliated rage, he turns to his wise men to find out what can be done to the queen for what he sees as an absolute outrage against him. Now, these wise men that he consults, they know more about the law of Persia than any other. What they should do at that point is to, to advise the king according to the law. But the king had made it clear to them that there's no question as to whether or not something is going to be done to Queen Vashti. That That's a foregone conclusion. Something will be done to her. The only question in the king's mind is what? And this he leaves in the hands of these advisors of his. Now, I want to reiterate what I pointed out last time, and that is this. The king's deferment of authority here to his to these wise men, this is not a show of of good, healthy accountability, of shared leadership, or of a government with checks and balances built into its system. It's just not that at all. It was most likely a demonstration of the king's confidence that his appointed yes-men would come up with a solution that would save face for the king in front of all of his guests and begin to quench the raging anger that burned inside of him. So we'll see in tonight's study how the Lord works through the king's pride and the Persian government's corruption to establish and enact his will, the Lord's will, by opening the door for Esther. So let's read together tonight's passage, Esther chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. 
If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Amen. Now, I want to begin in verses 16 through 18, the first three verses. So I know I just read them, but let me, let me read them again so that we're focused on these verses. Uh, beginning in verse 16, it says, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Okay, so at this point, the king's judgment and his decision-making had been seriously impaired. It had been impaired by the embarrassment that he experienced by the queen's disobedience. Remember, this is in front of a large audience of his, all of his guests. It's been impaired by his own burning anger and rage, and certainly by his drunkenness. Let's remember that honor is of the utmost importance to men in this culture. And and King Ahasuerus is no exception to this. His pride's been hurt. It's been hurt deeply. And he is deeply affected by that. Now, the wisest thing for King Ahasuerus to do at this point would have been to take a step back, calm down, stop drinking, and gather his wits about him. And had his wise men acted according to their namesake, wise men, they would have taken the wiser path of delaying a decision until passions had cooled down, tempers had settled down, and they would have counseled the king to do the same thing. They should not have been in such haste to render any kind of judgment in a matter that was this important. They could have, and I think really should have, used their position in this situation to diffuse what was clearly a very volatile situation. They could have recommended to the king right then and there that that he put a little bit of time between the situation and rendering a final decision as to what to do. They could have made that recommendation to him. If they were afraid to do that, if they were afraid of the king's response or possible response to this recommendation, and that would have been 
completely understandable. Okay, so if they were afraid, they could have done something like this. They could have asked for a day or two for them as experts in the law to study the law and to deliberate, to consult one another, to talk to one another in order to give the king the most effective solution possible to his problem. They could have and should have done, have taken that that course of action, but they didn't. Why? Well, you know, they, they, they might have been looking at the circumstance as an opportunity to advance their own standing before the king. They weren't expecting or anticipating this. Here's an opportunity for us to really advance our standing before the king. And then we also have to to remember or consider that their own judgment and decision-making had been impaired by their own intoxicated state. Now, I'm, I'm making an assumption, but let's remember the king's decree at the very beginning of this feast. No restrictions on drinking. Remember, he, he stated, every man can drink as much as he wants. So I'm making an assumption, but I think it's a safe assumption, that these wise men were probably intoxicated as well. And then let's not forget the pressure that they were under, created by, first, this volatile circumstance. Again, they weren't anticipating this. The king's anger and the king's pressure on them, his expectation for them to have an answer that's going to appease him. So, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have taken an empath to know in their part, that the king wanted an answer. And he wanted one now. He wanted an answer immediately. And they could also plainly see that the king, he was looking for a way of vindicating himself and reestablishing his sovereignty and his control in the eyes of all of his subjects. Remember, he's in front of a large audience here. All this is taking place publicly. So, as a result, restraint is not exercised. What we're told next is that Mamukin speaks. Now, we're not told exactly why he speaks for the seven, but he does. He might have been their designated speaker. There were seven of them. He might have been the speaker representing the seven of them, you know, similar to our speaker of the house in the house of representatives. Or perhaps he just saw this as an opportunity to advance his own individual personal standing before the king. Maybe he just jumped out and started speaking before the other six had an opportunity. We just don't know. The point is that he is speaking on behalf of the seven, of all of the king's wise men. And what he states here, what he does is he employs an age-old political strategy. And it really is, it's ingenious. It's an ingenious strategy, and it always seems to work. The strategy is this. Create a problem where a problem doesn't exist. Then play the hero and come up with the perfect solution to the problem. Usually hidden within the solution are tactics. Something along the lines of this. You can advance your own agenda. You can advance the agenda of the one you are serving. And you can make both of you look wise, wonderful, and benevolent in the eyes of the general population. 
Let me give you an example of one example of politicians using this strategy today. And that is the current push for electric powered automobiles. You're all aware of that, right? Okay, so what politicians have done here is they've created a problem. They claim that gasoline-powered automobiles are a problem. And here are, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's some of the more popular reasons they claim that uh, gas-powered automobiles are a problem. First, tailpipe emissions. They're causing excessive air pollution and a greenhouse effect that's damaging our atmosphere. That's a bad thing. Who's going to argue with that, right? That is a bad thing. Another is extracting fossil fuel to make the gasoline is damaging to the planet. And we're almost out of it. We're rapidly depleting our fossil fuel. And then one more is they claim that maintaining and disposing of gasoline-powered automobiles has a negative environmental impact. That's bad, right? A negative environmental impact. Who's going to argue with that? Now, I didn't bring this up tonight to start an argument or a controversy about gas-powered cars or battery or uh, electric-powered cars. My point is, is that the use of fabricated, in this case, the use of fabricated statistics has convinced much of the general public that all these things that they say is true. And they've offered the solution. Automobiles powered by electricity, that's the answer. It eliminates all these problems. Okay, the truth of the matter is this. First off, tailpipe emissions have been drastically, and I mean drastically, reduced over the past four decades to the point of virtually eliminating any negative impact on air quality. Those are the facts. Also, we're not in any danger at all of running out of fossil fuel. In fact, there are many, many, many pockets of fossil fuel that we know about that we've never even tapped into. And third, maintaining and disposing of gas-powered automobiles, it's highly regulated. It is highly regulated for the purpose of preventing any negative environmental impact. Okay, so I just wanted to give you one example from, from today's culture of how this strategy works. And it does work. This is just one example of many of how it works. All right, let's get back to Persia's non-existent problem, okay? There's nothing in the text or in the situation that indicates that this problem that Mamukin is describing actually exists. There's no empirical, that is, actual or observable evidence that the events that he is describing here will actually happen. His entire scenario is fabricated. It's made up. He states that all the women throughout the empire will be made aware of what Queen Vashti did. Now, I ask the question, How would every woman throughout the empire be made aware of this? Okay, communication in those days was not what it is today. Without official communications being sent out, most of the people, most of the general public in the provinces, they were unaware at least of of the details of all of the things that were happening in the capital city on a day-to-day basis. Now, it is true that this this seven-day feast, it was a major event. 
And the king did want many of the details of this feast to be known throughout the provinces. But remember, the king was in control. He was in far greater control of what information was distributed to the masses than individuals are today. Again, I want to give you just a quick example of what I'm talking about here from from today. All right. Recently, when President Donald Trump was arraigned in New York City, his wife, Melania, she wasn't with him. She was absent. (laughs) That fact was just about immediately known throughout the country. I mean, people were talking about it immediately. There's been a lot of speculation as to why she wasn't there. And many people claim and believe that she is just simply not supporting her husband. And again, I'm not bringing this up to, you know, stir up any controversy here today, uh, tonight. But whatever the actual reasons are that she wasn't there, I'm confident that President Trump would have preferred that her absence go unnoticed. Okay? But the truth of the matter is, that level of control over what details of public events are made known to the general public, it just doesn't exist today. Just simply doesn't exist. But things were much, much different in the days of the Persian Empire, especially when it came to events dealing with the king. He was in control. So how exactly would the queen's behavior be made known to all the women throughout the Persian Empire? Well, the reality is is that most likely it would not have been. And a rational mind would have seen that and at very least questioned Mamukin's presupposition of what was going to happen. But the king, he's just simply not in a state of mind to be thinking rationally, which means that this statement most likely, probably hit its mark in the king's heart, and he began to panic. Then he goes on to state what will happen when all the women find out about about the queen's behavior. Okay, so for a moment here, let's just presume that the queen's behavior was somehow made known to all the women throughout the empire. Let's go with that. It is impossible to know definitively how each individual woman would respond to that. Yet, he states it, Mamukin states it very definitively. He doesn't say, or he doesn't even offer this as a possible response. He states that being made aware of the queen's behavior will cause all of the women to look at their husbands with contempt. Now, contempt means to despise. It means to view a person as being worthless and not even deserving of your consideration. It's a very harsh statement. Now, there is a a true, an actual true principle that would certainly lend a level of credence to the concern that Mamukin raises here. And that is this. People in general do tend to be easily influenced, especially by rich people, famous people, beautiful people, and 
powerful people. And that's true. It's as true today as it was then. Today, this principle has been used to create an entire industry within social media platforms. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's known simply as influencers. Have you ever heard of influencers? These are individuals of some type of notoriety whose full-time jobs now are to influence the masses. And they influence them in political and social ways and political and social directions. And they're even self-identified now as influencers. So there, there is a true principle at work here. But for me, even when, when considering this principle, I, I, I see this as a, as a somewhat extreme conclusion to draw on nothing but speculation. Yet, this is what Mamukin states, and he states it to the king as fact. This will happen definitively. You see, what he's doing here, he is fanning the flames of the king's burning anger by feeding his already irrational state of mind. When I was thinking about this, I, I thought about um, something that I love to do in, uh, at, at, at home in front of my fireplace. If, there's a, if the fireplace is nice and hot, but the, but the actual fire has gone out, I'll take wood and I'll put it in the fireplace. So now all I've got is the wood, which is the fuel, and the heat, okay? And I'll sit there and I'll, I'll fan it, okay? And I'll just say, you know, sometimes it takes a few minutes and I'll just fan it like that. And then all of a sudden, it, the wood bursts into flames. And it's, it's just fascinating to me. This is exactly what Mamukin is doing. He's Fanning the flames. The, the king is enraged. Anger is burning within him. And Mamukin is just fanning those flames. He says to the king, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong. See, what he's doing here is he's substantiating. First off, he's substantiating the king's perspective that the queen has acted against him and she's done him wrong. He's substantiating that. And he plants a seed in the king's mind that the situation is far worse than the king even thought. He goes on to say, says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials, all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. You see, what he's saying to him is she has also acted against all your subjects and done all of them wrong also. He's implying here, clearly implying that the queen's actions were much, much more than a personal offense against the king. This is much more than just a a simple family matter here. What she's done, she's actually undermining the king's authority and reputation throughout the empire. See, he's saying without saying, as he's speaking to the king, he's saying, king, you don't just look foolish and weak in front of your guests, in front of this audience right here, but to all your subjects throughout the entire empire. See, he's building this into an even greater problem than it actually is. He's convincing the king that Queen Vashti has not only dishonored him, but she's actually dishonored all the men in Persia. 
Now, in the king's mind, what's he thinking? This would surely have a negative, a very negative effect on the king's reputation throughout the kingdom. I'm convinced that this must have really hit home for the king when you consider that he has spent the last six months, remember the six-month feast? That was all about building himself up for all the people that were there to then go home and communicate that to everyone at home. He's been, he's, he's, he has spent this, six, this past six months really building himself up throughout the entire empire. So everything here that Mamukin said was fabricated. It's all fabricated. And it's clearly meant to further enrage the king in his anger. Like I said, he's fanning the flames of his anger. He's not trying to calm the king down in any way. He's not trying to help the king to think rationally about the situation. He wants to enrage him even more. And then remember this. All of this is being said. This conversation is taking place publicly. Everything that he said was in front of an audience, all of the king's guests. And you know what they say, large audience, a lot of people, there's power in numbers. The text states that Mamukin said all of this, all that he said in the presence of the king and his officials. We're not told exactly how many people there were, how many heard his words, but it was a, it was a group of people, a large group of people. So this created problem, this problem that doesn't really exist, is now in the minds of not only the king, but the entire group. I can imagine all of the men there, suddenly they're thinking about this whole situation differently. They've they've been thinking about it as, wow, look at what the queen did to the king. He, He must really be embarrassed about that. He must really be humiliated. But now they're thinking, oh my gosh, this is what awaits me when I go home. This is what, this is how my own wife is going to be treating me now. I can imagine murmuring spreading throughout the group here. Imaginations really exacerbating the problem to even greater degrees. Like I said, I keep thinking about fanning the flames, you know, really getting that, really getting it going. I mean, how could the king's concern not increase? How could his anger not increase? And how could he possibly, at this point, not take action against Queen Vashti. So all of this that Mamukin has done here, all of this sets up the perfect circumstance to deliver to the king the perfect solution, right? Verse 19, he says, so this is now Mamukin speaking to the king. He says, If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, I just love the way he begins this statement. If it pleases the king. It's a classic statement of manipulation, right? It it gives the king in this situation the feeling of superiority over Mamukin by placing him, himself, Mamukin, in a position of subservience. See, what he's doing is he's saying, I only want to do what pleases you, my king. 
if it pleases the king. I humbly submit this. And it even gives the king the feeling that this idea, if accepted, it's at least partially his own idea. This is classic and masterful manipulation. That's what's happening here. Manipulation. And there's an implication here that I don't think that we should miss. The law makes no provision that will satisfy the king for this situation. So let's write one. Right? I see this this as, as clear implication because if there was a law that addressed this type of situation, the seven wise men, they would be aware of it and would at least be addressing it before the king. But they don't. This is classic corrupt government behavior, right? If the law doesn't allow me to do what I want to do, make one that does. Come up with a law and enact one that will allow me to do what I want to do. And it also subtly, but it establishes for us a very important element of Persian law. Mamukin states, so that it may not be repealed. Apparently, if the king decrees a royal order and it's written into the law as such, it can never, under any circumstance, be repealed, not even by the king himself. And I don't want to miss this because it plays a very important role in the events of chapter 8. It'll be a while before we get there, but I will remind you of this at that time. Okay, the recommendation, the actual recommendation. Mamukin's recommendation, it's, it's, it's very simple. It doesn't require any real explanation. It's direct, it's concise, and it's effective. What's the recommendation? Dethrone Queen Vashti and replace her, right? It's that simple. But I love the way he he ends his statement, his recommendation. He says, let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Now, I think, I think that from Mamukin's perspective, I think that he included this. He meant to further demean Queen Vashti in the king's mind, in the king's perspective. But I think there's more at work here than just that. I think that it serves as somewhat of a, of a prophecy. Esther will replace Vashti. And as the story develops, we're going to see that she is clearly better than Queen Vashti in many ways. But it also, it demonstrates for us, it's not explicit, but I think that it clearly demonstrates for us God's sovereignty in the circumstance. You see, King Ahasuerus will choose Esther as his new queen. And when he does, he will believe in his own heart that it's his sovereign choice, that it's his sovereign decision to do so. But the reality here is that God sovereignly chooses and God sovereignly places Esther in the role of Queen of Persia for 
his own purposes and according to his own will. Let me read you from chapter 4, verse 14. This is Mordecai speaking to Esther. He says to her, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God is sovereign and he's working behind the scenes, so to speak, in this situation. Verse 20. He goes on now to say, So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. So here's the outcome of the solution for the non-existent problem. Mamukin begins his statement with a presumption that the king will indeed act according to his suggestion. He says, so when the decree is proclaimed, he doesn't say if, he says when. This is yet more subtle uh, manipulation to steer the king in the direction of following this advice, his advice. Now, the purpose of the law was to instill fear in the hearts of all the women throughout the empire. Let's remember, things were a lot different in that culture. In, in, In that culture, if a husband left his wife and he put her out of his household, she had absolutely no means of supporting herself. She would just be destitute. Now, the king, the king could have just done this to Queen Vashti without this law being written. He could have done that. I mean, he was king, right? He had sovereign power. I don't think that anyone would have questioned him about it if he just did this without writing this, this law. For that matter, he could have just had her executed. Who's going to question the king about this? But what this solution offered the king was to solve his immediate problem, right? To vindicate himself and to reestablish his sovereignty and his control in the eyes of all of his subjects and to win even greater favor with all of the men throughout the empire by writing into law that every man in the empire is master of his own household. Hmm. From the king's perspective, he could end up in an even better position than he was before. There's a couple interesting points in this presentation that I want to draw to your attention before we move on. Um, Mamukin, he, he flatters the king in this unnecessary but not overlooked description of his kingdom. He, he kind of slips in there, for it is vast, as if the king didn't know that his empire was vast, right? Mamukin clearly knows how to work the king. Again, classic manipulation. And then the very end, he adds a little something to really seal the deal here. This proclamation of the king's power and authority will reach not just the nobles, King Ahasuerus, but all women And he uses this vernacular, high and low alike. Well, if all of the women hear about this, then all of the men, they're going to be loving it, aren't they? This has got to tickle the ears of the king. And like I said, 
I, I think at this point, he's starting to see that this solution can actually put him in better standing throughout the empire than he was before. Okay, our last two verses, 21 and 22. We're told, this advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So at this point, the king is convinced. He's convinced of all that Mamukin has proclaimed about the women throughout the empire, hearing about what Queen Vashti had done. And in his compromised state, in his mental, mentally and emotionally compromised state, this council pleased the king. This, it, 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 it surely must have reinvigorated the king's confidence that all of his subjects throughout his vast empire would know just how great and powerful he really is. This was the solution he was looking for and the outcome that he wanted. This law will show everyone in the entire empire how great he was, how powerful he was, and how far-reaching his authority was. So being pleased with the solution and confident that it would rebuild any damage that Queen Vashti's behavior had caused his reputation and, of course, his ego, he does what Mamukin suggested. He sends the letters proclaiming this decree. Now, the text states that he sent letters to every province in its own script and every people in their own language. This is the king ensuring that every individual throughout the empire would be privy to this directly, to this information. Since the, the remember, the Persian Empire was, was comprised of many conquered and captured people. So there were many different languages throughout the over 127 provinces. The king wanted to ensure that every individual, high and low alike, was able to read and understand this decree. The outcome, he's confident now, the outcome would be that every man in the empire would have the same authority in his own household that the king holds in his own household and throughout the empire. Come on. I mean, the Persian men of the day would certainly love their king for this. They would certainly be devoted to their king for this type of decree. And then the final point made is that each man should assert this authority, his authority, in his own home. In the Persian culture, providing all of the men the means to communicate the king's decree directly by using his own language was one way of promoting this. Okay, before we close, I do want to give a couple of uh, direct or, or, or life application elements uh, from this passage. Uh, this passage that we just studied, it, it highlights for us the importance of focusing our own hearts 
in our own minds on the righteousness of Christ. To base all of our own personal choices, our decisions, and all of the counsel and encouragement that we give to others on the righteousness of Christ. To always place him, the Lord, above ourselves. To always encourage Christ's righteousness in others. And to never encourage um, evil or selfishness or self-centeredness in others in any way. Now, of course, we will never be able to accomplish these things perfectly in this life. But we should, throughout our lives, we should always, always be striving for it. And then one final point I'd like us to consider is this. How many Mamukins are there in our lives? That is, people who try one way or another, to, to one degree or another, people who try to influence us for evil and manipulate us to, to behave and to even think in ways that are inconsistent with God's holiness, Christ's righteousness. We need to be constantly on guard and focused on making all of our own, uh, our choices, our decisions, everything in our lives based not in worldly foolishness, but in God's own wisdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this amazing and this wonderful passage. I pray, Father, that you will open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word tonight. Amen.